You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 68, The Eagle and the Owls. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'll remind you once again that you can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free by supporting the show on Patreon.com. I also need to make a quick pre-correction. A couple times during this episode, you'll hear me refer to the Duke of Provence. Well, there was no such person. I of course mean the Count of Provence. Just a small slip of the tongue. What can I say? This is why the revolutionaries wanted to get rid of all these noble titles. Too confusing. Anyway. Last episode, we continued our examination of Napoleon's reforms and domestic politics under the consulate. We closed out our discussion of the new civil code, how it helped seal the fate of Napoleon's critics in the tribunate, and how it contributed to his wider project of forging a new political coalition and reconciling the country to the new regime. As we discussed last time, Napoleon was throwing a lot of olive branches to the political right. Everything from purely symbolic measures, like the restoration of the ceremonial trappings of monarchy, to consequential concrete concessions, like conservative social policies in the new civil code. This episode will continue that thread examining Napoleon's overtures to conservatives and royalists, most of whom had been alienated from the central government in Paris for the better part of a decade. Many had engaged in violent resistance against the revolutionary government. The embers of this movement were still burning out in western and central France. The rebel field armies had been defeated long ago, but armed royalist partisans, known as Chouans, or Owls, still prowled the countryside, attacking Republican soldiers and government representatives when they could, and operating as bandits to keep themselves alive. Other opponents of the Republic had left France entirely, the émigrés. Some had actually joined forces with the Republic's enemies and fought alongside the coalition armies. It would be difficult to restore social and political harmony after so many years of bloodshed and bitterness. However, the length of the conflict also presented an opportunity. 
Many on both sides were exhausted, sick of war, and eager to seize any chance for peace. Napoleon's task was to convince people that his regime represented that chance, that if France followed him, he could lead the country out of civil conflict. To do this, he had to convince conservatives that there would be a place for them in the new France. Napoleon set to work on this process almost as soon as he took office. He launched his new regime with lots of rhetoric about unity and reconciliation. Napoleon promised to make the new government truly national, representative of the entire political spectrum, not just his own faction of centrist liberals. As Bonaparte himself put it, quote, I espouse no party but the masses. My policy is the complete fusion of the whole people. End quote. And this wasn't just talk. Some of his very first official acts involved easing state repression against the right-wing opposition. Most notably, thousands of royalists were released from Republican jails. If you'll think back to episode 57, The Infernal Machine, you'll recall that, to put it mildly, not all conservatives were won over. The group which had nearly succeeded in killing Napoleon with a bomb on the Rue Saint-Niquez were certainly not convinced of his good faith. But they were not representative of the entire French right. Others were at least willing to listen. However, there was a very big sticking point that would need to be addressed before any of these conversations could bear fruit. The conflict between the revolution and the reactionaries was largely religious. It was highly unlikely, if not impossible, that there could be any permanent resolution to France's political divisions without a settlement between the Catholic Church and the government. Catholicism in this era was not only a question of personal conviction and piety, or even of loyalty to the institution and to one's fellow Catholics. The Pope was the sovereign of an independent country, and doctrine demanded that all Catholics defer to his authority. So this was not a purely domestic affair. There could be no peace among Frenchmen unless there was also peace between the Pope, who was the leader of a foreign government, and the French government. On December 29, 1799, only six weeks after the coup of 18 Brumaire brought Napoleon to power, Bonaparte handed a packet of orders to his chief of staff, Louis-Alexandre Berthier, with the following instructions, quote, You will find herewith a proclamation and several decrees of the government relating to the Vendée. You will note that the inhabitants are free to practice their religion, that unsold churches are to be handed over to the communes, that priests are to be asked for no other oath than loyalty to the Constitution and that priests are at liberty to celebrate Mass whenever they wish. End quote. These restrictions on the Church which Napoleon was lifting had been part of the Republican counterinsurgency effort in western France. The rebels were so closely tied to the activities of right-wing priests that clamping down on the free practice of religion was practically the same thing as clamping down on the rebels themselves. But these measures also antagonized the people of western France. They sowed sympathy for the counter-revolutionaries and undermined faith in the government. 
Napoleon hoped that by allowing the free practice of religion, he could help set the stage for reconciliation. He also had a direct proposal for the royalist guerrillas, still under arms out in the remote parts of Brittany, Normandy, and the Vendée, full amnesty for any Chouan who came out of the woods and swamps and pledged his loyalty to the Republican government. Amnesty would be the carrot. The stick would be thousands of fresh Republican troops sent out to regions with a strong rebel presence. The message was clear. Napoleon planned to solve this problem once and for all, be it with the olive branch or the bayonet. Many of the rebel chiefs accepted amnesty. Now that Britain was at peace with the Republic, they had lost their most important and reliable source of arms, supplies, and money. Napoleon's offer was pretty good under the circumstances, and without foreign help, the rebels' chances of success had just dropped to somewhere near zero. For those who did not accept, there were the special military tribunals, which we discussed in episode 58, which executed hundreds of bandits and royalist rebels during the first years of Napoleon's rule, and killed hundreds more under dubious circumstances, like resisting arrest or attempting escape. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. The capitulation of the Vendée rebel leaders and the grisly work of the special military tribunals represented progress towards Napoleon's goal of uniting the country behind his new regime. But the most powerful and dangerous enemies of the revolution were not hunkered down in some forest with a rusty pike. They were the reactionary émigrés, who mostly lived quite well at the various royal courts of Europe, where they were a constant source of trouble and worry for the republican government. At least, that's how Napoleon and his peers tended to see things. For years now, the émigrés had been a kind of boogeyman for the revolutionaries. In times of civil conflict and political upheaval, people inevitably see conspiracy around every corner, and with their wealth and noble connections, the émigrés soon came to be seen as the puppet masters behind every setback and failure. There was some truth to this perception. As we've seen, there wasn't any shortage of genuine royalist conspiracies. British intelligence really did employ men like Georges Cadoudal, the right-wing Breton nobleman who had nearly killed Napoleon with his infernal machine. However, men like Cadoudal, or the exiled princes and dukes who fought alongside the coalition armies, were not truly representative of the émigrés as a group. By the time Napoleon took power, there were over a hundred thousand French men and women living overseas as émigrés. London alone was home to around 40,000, 
out of a population of roughly one million. Only a minority of this huge group had been members of the aristocracy. An even smaller number had been clergymen. Most were regular, low-born, average people. They were a diverse bunch in every sense of the word. Many were not even royalists, just apolitical people, or even Republican sympathizers, who for any number of reasons had found cause to flee France. Napoleon himself had the occasional fit of paranoia over supposed émigré plots, but unlike many of his peers, he seems to have recognized that not every Frenchman living abroad was an implacable opponent of the revolution. Many were eager to make their peace with the government and come home, even if it meant putting aside certain convictions. But bringing these people back to France was easier said than done. Unauthorized emigration had been a crime since the 1790s. Past revolutionary governments had been zealous in prosecuting offenders in absentia and seizing their estates. Any émigré who returned to France would find no property or assets waiting for them, only prison. And so, to entice the émigrés back to France, Napoleon set up a special tribunal to review emigration cases and grant clemency to those who were deemed to have been improperly convicted or who no longer posed a threat to the state. Sure enough, a slow but steady trickle of émigrés began to make their way back to France. Napoleon also reopened hundreds of Catholic religious institutions all over France. Remember, all church property had been seized by the revolutionary government during the heady days of the mid-1790s. Many were allowed to continue operating, with loyal priests who had sworn an oath to the revolutionary government, of course. Others had been sold off to private developers, or converted to some other use. Perhaps most famously, the Convent of the Annunciation on the Rue Saint-Honoré in Paris became the headquarters of the Jacobin Club. But there were many churches in France which had simply been boarded up. The government had been unwilling or unable to sell them, no other practical purpose could be found for them, and the revolutionaries had no desire to hand them back to the Catholics. And so they simply sat empty for years until Napoleon finally allowed their congregations to return. These gestures did not go unnoticed among conservative dissidents. Many, like Georges Cadoudal and his gang, rejected the very idea of compromise with the Republicans. However, others believed there was an opening which could lead to a way back. Not only back to France, but back into power. Some influential émigrés had become convinced that these olive branches from Napoleon were a prelude to a much grander and more momentous gesture, an invitation to the Count of Provence, brother of King Louis XVI, to return to Paris and assume the crown. I hope by now you all know Napoleon well enough to be able to tell that this was totally delusional a complete misunderstanding of Napoleon's character and personal values, and of the political scene inside France. These optimistic royalists were completely wrong, but I think it's interesting to explore how they arrived at this erroneous conclusion. 
they were trying to look at historical precedent to predict the future. In any time of crisis and uncertainty, people inevitably look for historical analogies that might shed light on their situation. The period of the French Revolution was no exception. The most popular and obvious historical analogy was to Britain in the 1640s, during the period we call the English Civil War. This was already over a century and a half in the past when the French Republic was declared, but there were some stunning parallels. A conflict between the legislature and the king over the kingdom's finances, which escalated into civil conflict, eventually leading to the execution of the king and the declaration of an ideologically radical republic. That republic ruled for over a decade, until its unstable internal politics finally rendered it incapable of governing. At the key moment, the only man on the scene with power and the wherewithal to use it was a republican general, George Monk. Monk and his army swept into the power vacuum and finally ended the uncertainty by inviting Charles Stuart, son of the executed king, to return from exile and take the crown. As you can see, with so many close historical parallels to the events of the 1790s, it was tempting for those living through the French Revolution to read the history of the English Civil War almost like a prophecy of what was to become of their own country. When the whole world seems to be crumbling and unprecedented events take place on a near-daily basis, it is comforting to believe you might be able to determine what will happen next. All sides of the political spectrum dabbled in this kind of thinking. When Maximilien Robespierre denounced his former ally, Danton, one of his main charges was that Danton was attempting to make himself into a latter-day French Oliver Cromwell, who had emerged as a dictator after the English Civil War. King Louis XVI read extensively about the English Civil War before his trial and execution. Not that it did him much good. Now, some royalists believed they were picking up on another historical parallel. Napoleon Bonaparte might be Francis George Monk, a military man who steps in to put an end to the chaos of the revolution by restoring the monarchy. That seems like quite a big leap, but a lot of powerful émigrés believed it. Enough that they decided to send high-level representatives to Paris to attempt to arrange a meeting with Bonaparte himself, learn his intentions, and deliver a message from the man who would be king, the Duke of Provence, proposing the restoration of the monarchy, and promising Napoleon lavish rewards and the eternal gratitude of the nation if he helped restore the crown to the Bourbon dynasty. This was a very risky endeavor, Despite Bonaparte's more permissive stance towards the right-wing opposition, a prominent royalist entering Paris on an errand for the Duke of Provence could easily find himself in prison or beneath the guillotine. However, in this case, the royalist agents were able to make contact with Foreign Minister Talleyrand, who arranged a clandestine meeting with Bonaparte. Apparently, one of the royalists was surprised that Napoleon showed up to the meeting inconspicuously, without fanfare, dressed in simple civilian clothes. Yes, this was a secret meeting, which would have been a political disaster for Napoleon if it became public knowledge. 
but apparently they were expecting him to show up with all the hoopla due to a head of state. And these people wondered why they weren't in charge of the country anymore. Once they got over Napoleon's disguise, the royalists handed him a letter from the Duke of Provence, with two straightforward requests. Restore the monarchy, and restore the church. On the first matter, Napoleon was quite blunt. From his response to the Duke, quote, You must give up all hope of returning to France. You would have to step over a hundred thousand corpses to do so. Sacrifice your personal interest to the peace and happiness of France. History will remember you for it. I am not unmindful of the misfortunes of your family. I would be glad to contribute to the comfort of your retirement. End quote. In other words, not going to happen. If the Duke of Provence wanted Napoleon's friendship, he would have to stay out of politics permanently. To outside observers, like the Duke and his friends, it might have appeared that the revolution was running out of steam, that Napoleon represented a faction of Republicans who were exhausted with political struggle and looking for an exit. That might have been true, but what the Duke and his supporters didn't realize is that Napoleon saw himself as that exit. He wasn't looking for a savior, he believed he was the savior. And many French men and women were coming to agree. The old Bourbon monarchy was not universally viewed as a source of stability. After all, who had been in charge when all this trouble began? Even if Napoleon had agreed to become part of this plan, there was no way France would accept the return of the old regime without a bloody fight. The Duke of Provence and his followers were fools for even entertaining this notion. The Bourbons had lost the crown because they were detached from the basic political realities of the country they ruled. Nearly a decade of exile seemed to have taught them little. However, when it came to the second proposition presented by the royalist agents, the restoration of the church, Napoleon gave a much more interesting answer. Quote, I will re-establish religious practice, not for your sake, but for mine. We nobles have no great need for religion, but the people do need it, so I shall re-establish it. End quote. This implied that Bonaparte was willing to go much further than simply tolerating the existence of pro-Vatican Catholics within France, that he might actually be willing to heal the schism and bring the bastardized pro-revolutionary version of French Catholicism supported by the state back into communion with the Pope in Rome. But what would this restoration mean in practice? Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The dispute between the revolutionaries and the Vatican wasn't some purely academic matter of ideas and theology. There is truth to the stereotype of the revolutionaries as fanatically anti-religious. 
They were inspired in part by Enlightenment rationalism, which took a skeptical view of both established institutions and of the supernatural. Some strains of Enlightenment thought were deeply anti-religious. Some were even atheistic. But this conflict between the Church and the Revolution was about more than spiritual matters. The revolutionaries objected to the role the Church played in society, a foreign institution not accountable to any political process, which nonetheless controlled or influenced huge areas of pre-revolutionary French life, education, family law, social welfare. Thanks to anti-blasphemy and anti-heresy legislation, the Church even had some control over what people were allowed to think and say. As patriots and republicans, the revolutionaries found this status quo intolerable. They believed all matters of public administration should be under the purview of a rationally organized national government, acting in the common good with the consent of the people. They viewed institutions like the church, which drew its authority primarily from belief and tradition, as inherently illegitimate and tyrannical. In their view, no violation of national sovereignty could be tolerated, not even to make a place for a religion which the vast majority of French people followed. Ironically, many conservative Catholics felt the same way, that a person could not properly call himself a Catholic unless he lived under a Catholic monarch in a society which granted the Church broad powers and near-total autonomy from the government. So many on both sides believed compromise was fundamentally impossible, that a country had to choose between accepting a powerful, unaccountable Catholic Church or permanently breaking with the Vatican. No middle ground. These debates can seem a bit obscure today. We live in a world in which this issue is essentially solved. Sure, there's the occasional disagreement over the separation of church and state, sometimes even quite heated, but there are very few people who seriously doubt that the Catholic Church is capable of harmonious coexistence with the modern nation-state. When these issues come up today, we're almost always debating what that peaceful coexistence should look like, not whether or not it's possible. But try to put aside what you know of the modern world and get into the mindset of the revolutionaries. When you think about it from a rational perspective, it's quite unusual to grant a foreign sovereign control over huge swaths of society. How long do you think the governments of major powers today would tolerate a foreign regime operating on their territory with no oversight? Even if their own people wanted it. Even if they saw it as a spiritual obligation. Imagine if today there was a ministry of the Italian government that managed the education and social welfare policies of half of Europe and most of the Americas. For the revolutionaries, the Vatican's influence over what should have been purely domestic concerns was just another one of the monarchy's many betrayals of French national honor. Then again, perhaps the so-called rational perspective is actually not the best way to look at this issue. After all, this is a matter of religion. For many people, the question of Vatican influence had nothing at all to do with newfangled worldly concepts like rational administration or national sovereignty. It was about universal spiritual truth, 
good versus evil. If you really truly believe the Pope is the divinely appointed successor of St. Peter the Apostle, the right-hand man of the Son of God, and granted by God authority to lead all Christians until Judgment Day, how could there even be a question of whether or not some worldly human government should follow his directives? If being a Catholic was fundamentally about accepting the authority of the Pope, how could the Pope direct his followers to defer to the authority of a human government? The question becomes even thornier when that government is in geopolitical and theological conflict with the Vatican. This was far from the first time Europeans have been faced with these types of questions. Medieval, Renaissance, and early modern history are full of tugs of war between secular sovereigns and the Vatican. In fact, France was actually one of the countries where the monarchs had been successful at prying some of the powers of the church away from the grip of the pope and putting them under the control of the state. This process hadn't gone nearly far enough for the revolutionaries, but from the perspective of the pope and his administration, they had already given plenty of very generous concessions to the French, perhaps too many. So the idea of the French church seizing even more autonomy from the Pope was anathema. The church and the republic were in conflict over these questions of politics and ideas, and by the time Napoleon took power in 1799, they had also become strategic opponents. If you think all the way back to episode 29, you'll remember that in 1796, during the first Italian campaign, Napoleon's troops took a detour into papal territory. Despite the stereotype of the Republicans as fanatical atheists bent on destroying the church, these troops had no interest in harming the Pope or extracting any political concessions from the Vatican. This expedition to Rome was little more than an old-fashioned shakedown. The French left with 21 million francs from the papal coffers and an eye-popping selection of paintings, sculptures, and historical artifacts from the Vatican collection. Things could have ended there, and it probably would have been better for everyone if they had. But the Pope continued his intrigues with the coalition, and French agents in Rome stepped up their agitation against the Vatican. Things came to a head in late December, 1797. A demonstration in Rome by pro-French patriots turned violent. In the chaos, the military attaché of the French embassy, General Léonard Dufaux, was killed. The French were outraged, claiming papal authorities had used the riot as a pretext to target Dufaux for assassination. The Vatican maintained their forces had acted properly. Dufaux had chosen to involve himself in an illegal riot and paid the price. Whatever the case, the death of a senior member of the French diplomatic mission was a solid pretext for war, and the French took it. In early 1798, Republican troops stormed over the northern border of the Papal State. They were led by Louis-Alexandre Berthier, Napoleon's chief of staff, advisor, and confidant. Berthier had been a staff officer almost his entire career, this fateful, historic expedition would be one of the few times he ever led troops in combat as an independent commander. 
but I use the term combat loosely, because the small, poorly organized papal army offered no serious resistance. Republican troops entered Rome in early February, and shortly afterwards, local pro-French patriots declared a new state with a very old name, the Roman Republic. General Berthier offered Pope Pius VI a deal. He would renounce all his worldly powers, recognize the Roman Republic, and cease to be an independent sovereign, become just an ordinary citizen who happened to be the most senior clergyman of the Catholic Church. In return, the Republic would give him his freedom, and promise to stay out of church affairs. It's tantalizing to imagine what might have happened if Pius had agreed, but obviously this was not much of a deal, and he didn't take it. Berthier was true to his word. No deal, no freedom. French soldiers took the Pope into custody. According to one source, crowds of Roman citizens lined the streets, watching in silence in the rain as a carriage took Pope Pius VI into exile. For the Catholic faithful, this was one of the blackest days in the history of the Church. Barely six months later, the Pope was dead. The revolutionaries gave him no special consideration. He was listed among all the other deceased of the department, under his birth name, Giovanni Angelo Braschi. Occupation? Pontiff. This was not a surprise to anyone. The Pope was 81 years old, and had already been in poor health before he left Rome. Pius himself was so sure he would not survive captivity that before his fateful meeting with Berthier, he had already planned the conclave to elect his successor. There's no evidence the Pope was mistreated to any significant degree during his captivity, and yet, Rumors persisted that he was effectively tortured to death by the godless Republicans. Untrue, but perhaps understandable, given the revolutionaries' track record with conservative Catholics who stood in their way. But even many Catholics who did not believe the conspiracy theories were left embittered by the death of Pope Pius VI. He may not have been abused or tortured, but there could be no question that his treatment fell well below the standard they considered worthy of a pope. He had died in confinement, surrounded by his enemies. It was an ignoble end for a man of his station, without a doubt. Of course, the Republicans would probably counter that the pope had made his own bed when he chose to meddle in worldly politics with the Republican army right on his doorstep. How else could they have responded? The Vatican requested the Pope's body be returned to Rome, as were his wishes. The revolutionary government refused. Their counteroffer was that the Pope would be buried in France, but with the dignity of a full Catholic service. The Vatican rebuffed this offer. A funeral arranged by the Republicans would be presided over by pro-revolutionary priests who had taken their oath to Paris, which meant They were no longer true Catholic clergy in the eyes of the Vatican. To see the Pope buried by Republican heretic priests would be an insult. And so, Pius VI was laid to rest with no ceremony, making him probably the only Pope not to have a Catholic funeral. This was how low relations between France and the Vatican had sunk, 
They couldn't even reach an agreement on these trivial symbolic matters relating to an old man's funeral. Napoleon believed, probably correctly, that France could never enjoy domestic tranquility as long as the Republic remained at odds with the Vatican. He believed resolving this conflict was the single most difficult task facing him after he took power, and hopefully this episode has given you some sense as to why. Next time, we'll see how Napoleon was able to turn around this low point in French-Vatican relations, and finally reach a compromise with the Church. Until then, thanks for listening. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis, and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast.